Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. That's going to be their second book in your Bibles. And if you are here and you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those Black Pew Bibles that are in front of you and turn to page 64. But we are, this morning, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 23. And we're going to look at verses 20 through 33 this morning. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Listen to God's word. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. Nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. I will drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. And I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All of us long for home. Uh, no matter how great the vacation has been, no matter how excellent the retreat was, or how good the concert was, we all long for home. And yet when we get home, many of us feel a little out of place, because there remains a gnawing itch, a little bit of a dissatisfaction in our hearts. When we're home, we realize that our bodies are not our home. Uh, they betray us with old age. They break down. And you're not really at home in your home because when you're at home, you're thinking, what new improvements can I make? What new house can I buy? Your family isn't home because, well, your family never perfectly displays what it's meant to display. And we would even say that church isn't home. Yes, it's a as a household of God, the church is the household of God, and yet we would say it's full of brokenness, 
and lukewarmness. And you definitely don't feel at home at your job. I've, I've read article upon article recently just about how millennials and Gen Z's, you know, generation, they just don't want to work anymore. <laughs> there is this sudden spike of disengagement. There is an unsettledness, we should admit, among all of us. But perhaps what we need to embrace is that our dissatisfaction, our restlessness that we might feel, can be a gift from God. And God in his providence, I think, wants us to have a sanctified kind of dissatisfaction, a homesickness, an appropriate homesickness. He wants us to long for something better, to long for a better country, a better place, to be with a better person. But God does not want us to find ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world, but to find it in him and in the world to come. And in many ways, this is the theme of our passage this morning. It might not look like it, but Israel, at this moment in Exodus, is being invited to look forward to a time in which they will enter into the land of Canaan, the promised land that God had promised to their forefathers in Abraham. And God says to his people, and I think he says to us this morning as well, he says to them, I'm going to get you home. Listen to me. I'm going to get you home. Listen to me. We've been making our way through the book of Exodus, chapter by chapter, And thus far, you'll kind of recall that God has delivered his people out of Egypt. Ten plagues, and Pharaoh lets them go. And then God meets them at Mount Sinai. Ten commandments for the way that they should live. And now in chapters 21 through 23 of Exodus, we have the book of the covenant. Kind of case laws about how they should live as a people, an outworking of those Ten Commandments for Israel's context. Now, as God wraps up the Book of the Covenant, he reminds Israel why he saves them. He tells them, I didn't save you just so that you can be free of Pharaoh's grasp. He says, I didn't save you so that you can simply be wandering in the desert all your days. No, he says, I saved you to be my people a kingdom of priests, and I saved you to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. God says, I will do it. I will get you home. Listen to me. And in that context, God makes three promises. First, he promises them a guide to lead them to the land of promise. Second, he promises them a home in the land of promise. And third, he promises them a victory over their enemies who are already living in the land of promise. So, as I hope we'll see, these commitments that God makes to Israel are also commitments that he makes to, God, to his own people today. So first, a promise of a guide. You can see that very clearly in verse 20. Behold, it says, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way 
and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. God promises to bring his children, his people, into the place he's prepared for them, and how he does it, the means by which he will do that is that he will give them a guide, a supernatural guide. He will give them an angel. Now, this isn't the first time that we've seen an angel in the book of Exodus. Actually, an angel has appeared earlier in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, at the burning bush. This angel is kind of like the burning bush. It's almost like the same thing. And then we don't see an angel again until we get to chapter 14, verse 19, with the pillar of cloud and the, uh, and, and the, uh, the pillar of fire. There's an angel that is almost the same thing as this pillar of cloud, God leading them through the wilderness. Now, here in chapter 23, we see an angel again. But it becomes very clear as we're reading that this is no ordinary angel. Look at what verse 21 says. Israel is to pay careful attention to him, the angel, and obey his voice. But then, immediately, verse 22, what does it say? It says, carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. In other words, the angelic voice is speaking the words of God. Is itself the speech of God. And it continues like this throughout the passage, going back and forth between what he, the angel, is going to do and what I, God, is going to do. What's more in verse 21? It says this angel is in a position to pardon sin. It says in verse 21, don't rebel against him. Why? Because he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. Well, who is this angel? Who is this angel that is distinguished from God yet at the same time possesses this uniquely divine attributes. Who is this angel who speaks with God's voice, commands the same obedience that God requires, can forgive sins, and in whom the name of God dwells? I really don't think it's much of a stretch to conclude that he is, this angel is the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed to the world before he became a man. Christians throughout history have identified this angel as the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Now, you might remember Jesus' earthly ministry when he, was, he gets into all these tussles with these Pharisees and, and scribes, and his enemies understood that he made a claim to deity when he said, your sins are forgiven. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, they say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God? And they were right. Their theology was correct. Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one can. It must be God alone. And so I don't think this is an ordinary angel. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. And I wonder if you hear the echo of the words of Christ to his disciples in John 14. When Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If this were not so, would I have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Okay. I think we're supposed to hear echoes of Exodus there. Or verse 20, um, where it says, 
I go to prepare a place for you. And then John 17, 12, Jesus says, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. This is Jesus praying to God. I've kept them in your name, which you have given me. And sounds a little like verse 21, which says, my name is in him. So long before his incarnation and long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Christ was with his people on their way to salvation. And today, Jesus says to everyone in this room that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father, comes to the Father, except through me. He tells you, Christian, I will not only lead you all the way home, I am with you always until the end of the age. So, Christian, let this be an encouragement to you. Though you have not reached the promised land yet, though you have maybe endured many hard trials, or as we have just sung in Psalm 23, you have been walking through those valleys, those dark valleys of the shadow of death, Jesus is with you. He is the sure guide. So don't veer off the path. Don't go serving other gods, as it says in verse 24 in Exodus. They're snares to you, as it says in verse 31. You know, there's a scene in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings where those two hobbits, um, Bilbo, no, Frodo and Sam, Frodo and Sam, Frodo and Sam, they're on their journey, and, they, and they're being led by Gollum, actually, through the dead marshes. And what are the dead marshes? It was this lake. This ancient battle had taken place there, and this pool of water was there, and the bodies of slain warriors are all over in, in this water. And all over the marsh, there are small flames flickering through the bog, burning in the fog. And Gollum warns those two hobbits, don't follow those lights because they don't make safe passage. It's tempting to follow them, but don't because they're deceptive. They will lead you to join the dead yourself. I think that's how we are. We need a safe guide through treacherous territory, but there are snares, there are deceptive lights flickering all around us, diverting us, tempting us all over the place to turn from, the, to turn from our narrow path, to say, oh, that, it, doesn't this seem attractive? Doesn't this path seem wider, easier, more acceptable, more plausible? But those are not just dead ends, but deadly in the end. The world offers us the pursuit of pleasure or the promise of maybe political solutions. It suggests that the best route to the best life, bigger homes, more stuff, healthier lifestyles, freedom from constraints, do more good. All of them, flickering lights. Flickering lights that will destroy you in the end if you follow them. So who are you following these days. Who are you following these days? Are you following the crowd? Are you following your own heart? 
deadly guides. Jesus is the one who lights the way. Jesus is the safe guide. Jesus goes ahead of you and keeps you on this journey and guides you on this journey. Our hearts, friends, will forever be restless until we find our rest in him. Do you follow Jesus? Do you listen intently by reading his word daily? Or do you feel despair if you are not daily being guided by God and his word? Do you want to follow him? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross daily, and follow me. Do you or have you ever done that? Second, we see in our passage a promise of a home. Look at verses 25 and 26. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Not only will the Lord himself be with them and guide them and lead them and bring them into the land, he promises that he will richly bless them as they live there. There's all the difference in the world, isn't there? Between a place of residence and a place where you feel like you belong, where you truly belong. And that is what is being promised to God's people, not just a place to stay, but a place that will suit them and bless them, a place that they will never want to leave. As Israel lived in obedience to God's commands, as they remained loyal to Yahweh and refused to bow down to idols, the Lord promises to bless their food, keep them from sickness, to prevent miscarriage, to give them long and fruitful lives. Now, there are a number of things to say about this promise. First, it's useful to remember that it's not an absolute promise. This isn't some legalistic prosperity gospel that is being hashed out here. No, God isn't saying that if Israel would simply do what they're told, and then in the land of Canaan, it will be some kind of utopia. You know, no sickness, no suffering, no social anxiety, no sadness. If you know your Bibles, you know that even in times of obedience, there was loss. Naomi lost her sons, Ruth, her husband. This isn't a promise that every single one of Israel's two million people would have never have anything bad happen to them. But there is a general sense that within the nation of Israel, as compared to other nations, there was going to be fruitfulness and favor. It's the idea, for the most part, that those who set themselves to live life on God's terms discover that his order is not only good for, his, for God's glory— and our holiness, but it is also good for our happiness. This isn't legalism. Do this, and then you'll get this. Take, for example, if I told my children, if I told, told them, Mommy and Daddy are going to take you to Disneyland. 
I bought all the passes. It's a, a hopper pass, something, whatever, right? It's a genie pass. You get to skip all the lines. It's, uh, you get photos of you and whatever. And you get to ride all these rides. It's done. Churros all day long. If I told them that. And I told them, but before we get there, you're going to have to obey some rules. If I told them that. I said, you're going to have to listen to mom and dad because we're going to drive down for six hours. And you're going to eat when we say you're going to eat. And you're going to drink water when we say you can drink water. But if you don't listen to us, it's not going to be that fun, actually. You're going to be tired. You're going to be cranky. You might even get sick. You might even get hurt. It won't be a nice experience. It won't be a six-hour drive. It'll be a 12-hour drive. The trip is a wonderful gift from your parents. But listen to us. Now, is that law or is that gospel? The good news is there. You're going to Disneyland. It's undeserved, unmerited favor. But there are some rules. Not because you're earning your way to Disneyland, but because it'll be good for you. Now, the more important part of this, the real significance of this promise by God about a home, uh, there is this greater theological significance that we can see here. Now, if you know the story of Christianity, it actually begins with paradise. It begins with God's people in God's place in perfect fellowship with him. But because of the disobedience of Adam, all of mankind has been plunged into sin. And the result is what? Curse upon their labors and work. Curse upon childbearing as well. Because we want to live lives on our terms, we've rejected God and we've made a terrible mess of everything and everyone around us. But now as we read this particular promise about Canaan for Israel, it's sort of like a paradise regained, isn't it? There's a mitigation of the worst parts of the curse. It's a curse re reversal, isn't it? It's like, oh no, you're going to get bread. Those miscarriages aren't going to happen. Childbirth will not be as difficult. The words of life in Canaan are almost heaven-like, and I think it's meant to be that way. You see, Israel's pilgrimage is an analogy, a type, a picture of the Christian pilgrimage. The land of Canaan that Israel was to enter into is a picture of the new heaven and the new earth, and it is about the curse being reversed. The land is a reminder of a day when everything sad, as Tolkien says, will become untrue. If you skip to the end of your Bible, in Revelation 21, we were there last weekend, but I'm bringing us there again. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, it says this, 
And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, this picture of Israel entering into Canaan is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is preparing a new heaven and a new earth for his people. That is home. Not this. Not this world. And Christian, we need to fix our eyes on Christ and the world to come. Now, last weekend at retreat, we spent three days basically contemplating heaven and hell. And today I'm asking you to return to that mode of thinking once more. And I really want you to be honest with yourself this morning and to ask yourself, when you're thinking about heaven and the new heavens and new earth, what are your thoughts? Is it simply, whatever, take it or leave it? If you can think that way about the new heaven and new earth, if, you, if the hope of glory does not excite you, but only whatever is here and now, if heaven doesn't really appeal to you, but maybe home improvement does a little bit more, if the near presence of Christ face-to-face with him does not hold your attention and capture your heart, but rather it's extracurricular activities or resumes or the next job or whatever it might be, if those are the things that are completely capturing your heart, then, friend, I don't know if you're going to get home. I don't know if you're going to make it to the promised land at all. So how can we be sure that we are on the right path, that we are on the way home? It's not do more. That's not the answer. It's not, oh, I'm just going to you know, start coming to church more, listen more, volunteer more. The answer is look to the guide. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to him. Look away from sin. Turn from sin. Turn from placing your hopes in yourself or in the things of this world. And turn to Jesus Christ. Place your trust completely in him. God is calling you to come home. Listen to him. Listen to him. promise of a guide, a promise of a home. And third, I want you to see a promise of victory. You see that in verses 22 through 24, then again in verses 27 through 33. Uh, the land that Israel is about to get into, about to enter into, is already occupied. God gives a list of the nations, a sampling of the people who are there in Canaan, who would be in the land. But it's important to remember where the Israelites are on their way of salvation and the story of their salvation. They are somewhere between Egypt and Canaan, aren't they? 
They've already been redeemed by God. They're already His people. They're saved. They've been baptized through the Red Sea, so to speak. And they're on their way to the promised land. But in order to enter their full and final salvation, they still had enemies to conquer. And as Christians, we might say that we are in that same position, that we are in that same spiritual geography somewhere between Egypt and Canaan. God has redeemed you. You are his people. You have been baptized. Now you're on the way to the promised land and this glorious heaven that God has promised you, this glorious home, this forever home, but there are still enemies to face. The victory that Jesus won is not yet complete in that way. There is a warfare in which the people of God must engage if we are to take possession of God's promised inheritance. In other words, there is no coasting into Zion. We are to wrestle, fight, pray. Not, of course, against flesh and blood. Paul says in Ephesians, we wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. This is a war in which, we are to, in which there are no non-combatants in the church of Jesus Christ. We fight. We fight against festering sin in our hearts. We fight for holiness. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. We take up the shield of faith to extinguish the, the flaming darts of the evil one. We fight that the gospel might, made, might be made known to the ends of the earth. All of that is true, and we need to hear that. There's a call to arms. Verse 24, you shall overthrow them, break their pillars in pieces. Verse 25, serve the Lord your God. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with other gods. There shall be no treaty, no truth, no truce with the idols of the land. But when at last the battle is won, when the people are driven out, will Israel say, look at what I did. Look at what I did. You know, I was so brave. We were so brave. We were so, we were so smart. We did such a good job. No. Observe the passage again. Who promises the victory? The Lord himself. Notice all the instances of the first person singular here. Look at verse 23. These nations, I will blot them out. Verse 27, God speaking, I will send my terror before you. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Verse 28, I will send hornets. Well, it's probably not literal hornets. Probably talking about what happens when hornets descend on people. They kind of flee like crazy. That's the confusion that he's picturing here. Verse 29, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate. God is saying, I will defeat these enemies in the best way that's possible for you. Because if I wipe them out, you wouldn't be able to care for the land and defend yourselves against the wild animals. And verse 31, I will set your border from sea to shining sea. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hands. You see, God is saying, trust me. I got this. And church, it is the same for us. When the battle is won and sin and Satan are overthrown, 
when we've seen instances of victories in the gospel, overcoming sin and temptation, when at last the mission of the church is finished and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are there, when the victory is ours at last and we're finally home, who gets the cred? Well, not to us. Not to us, but to the Lord be the glory. Church, God will do it. We think it's our cleverness that will make the world a heaven on earth. We trust in our own strength, our own intellect, our own resources, our own riches to somehow fight sin. We emphasize technique and think that, wow, even when we do pray, that we would, if we just had the right prayer or claim the right promise, that we will win the battle. And we wear, our, we wear ourselves out because of faithlessness. No, God gets the victory. God will do it. God says, trust me. I will get you home. Look to me. Listen to me. Brothers and sisters, our sojourn here is but a moment. We have this restlessness and fatigue from our pilgrimage here on earth. That is true. But God promises promises us a guide. Christ will be with you to the end of the age. Romans 8 tells us that neither death nor life, angels or rulers or things present or things to come, nor powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He promises us a home, a place where the curse is gone and will finally do and be who we were meant to be. And he promises us victory. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Christian, be encouraged, take heed, look up, look up, because home is on the way. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you for all the different lessons that you have taught us through Exodus thus far. But we are reminded this morning of living our lives with with our, heaven, with our hearts set upon eternity. Father, may that mean that we would draw closer to you each day, that we would feel desperate in humility, knowing that we cannot get through even a single moment without Christ as our guide. So, Father, we pray that you would that we would continue to be men and women, boys and girls of faith. That we know that you will land us safely on the shore of Canaan. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.